or with a sound check. Can you hear me in the back? Great. So I'd like to talk tonight more about metta and samadhi and maybe how this fits into our larger tradition, both the cultivation of metta and the cultivation of samadhi. A few days ago, um, Sally brought up this word samadhi. And <clears throat> it's, uh, it's not a word that many of us are accustomed to. So we do have English substitutes. But a lot, you need to use a lot of English words to, to get attuned to what this word samadhi is. So uh, it takes a lot of personal exploration, development, and then starting to see what samadhi is and how beautiful it is when you see it within your own heart. So uh, one of the purposes of this retreat in our tradition is to develop samadhi, this collectedness, this ease, this inner unification, this uh, brightness combined with relaxation, non-agitation. And so that's one of the way, that's one of the reasons we've structured the meditation as we have to support the arising of samadhi, and then also to use metta as one of the doorways of that, to developing this flow of samadhi. But just to step back for a sec, we're developing the four Brahma Viharas, these four qualities of heart, and seeing how each one is a particular attunement of heart, that metta is a general friendliness, compassion resonates where there's suffering, mudita resonates where there's joy or uh, something to celebrate, and then equanimity, the balance within it all, the balance that can open up to it all and not find reactivity in opening up that, that large, that wide. And these uh, four Brahmaviharas are a bit like four strings on a ukulele or four strings on a violin. Uh, with just four strings, you can create a tremendous amount of music. And so you can convey a lot uh, on a very simple instrument with these four strings. And they get attuned to each other. So once you tune each string on a violin, or in my case, a ukulele, you then tune them to each other make sure that you actually have a really beautiful harmony. So you can't just digitally tune one at a time and expect there to be that exquisite harmony. You then have to let them vibrate together, do subtle adjustments, and then, you, then when you strum a ukulele or when you play something on a violin, all four strings work together. And so you, we have reasons for compassion. We're opening up to equanimity and often where I find life most challenging. I'm often having a dialogue between equanimity and compassion. And then when the Venn diagram of what equanimity looks like and what compassion looks like starts to be a similar view, I get this harmony where I'm not resisting the way things are, but it's seeing things because there's no resistance opens up a very beautiful compassion. And often I'm not quite in balanced equanimity, I'm not quite in balanced compassion, 
So they seem at odds. There seems like there's a tussle between them. And so we practice these four Brahma-viharas. They start to harmonize. We start to know their frequency. And that makes them Brahma-viharas. Vihara is a sacred home, a sacred dwelling. And some of the things you might think are sacred dwellings are really ostentatious, sacred monuments. Uh, There are great temples and there are ordinary temples. (laughs) And then there are very humble temples. And I've met various versions of temples, and the humble one is the best. (laughs) But you can come to a place where uh, someone has done a lot of meditation. In Burma, there are Burma, uh, Sri Lanka, Thailand, there are caves. And you think, okay, a cave. I'll go look at this cave. It's actually just a slightly slanted rock that protected somebody from the rain the little chipping of the stone so when the water comes down the front of the rock it's a little slushed to the side but it's not even all that protective and in those warmer climates you don't need that kind of protection but it's so um it allows you to rest in the natural environment and then later you could walk by and not even realize it was a humble sacred dwelling and so we're inviting our hearts towards humble, sacred dwelling, and what is it like when we start to know this refuge of our own heart? And that's where these become Brahma-viharas, sacred dwellings. And again, the verb for meditation is viharati. And so if you are actively taking refuge and actively cultivating sacredness inside, then you're developing these Brahma-viharas which leads very beautifully towards samadhi, this collectedness, this wholeness, this non-agitation. And probably we, if we heard about a concentration retreat just by that English word, it might seem very grand what a concentrated mind is, and Sally described that. But you might have a very natural samadhi in ordinary life and not really take much note of it because it's kind of peaceful and collected. Like you might find that your mind's very turbulent and you go for a walk in nature, you go for a walk where you just slow down a little bit, go walk on a beautiful day, and it's soothing. One of the reasons it's soothing is your mind doesn't speed up. It doesn't further fragment. It's not haggard by all these different directions the mind can go. It starts to calm down, unify, to see the flowers, you start to see subtle detail, and a more peaceful state comes over you. And you could call that a kind of samadhi in daily life. And tuning into that is helpful to know what we're doing here. We're not creating grand experiences of loving kindness. Those will come and visit us, but we can get just as lost in pursuing them and then measuring our practice by some type of peak experience. And if you've actually practiced in a way where you're like, okay, I came for greater things, I got disappointed, but I'm willing to keep practicing just in these very ordinary moments, you're actually creating a low bar where more moments of your life have this background of, yeah, I'll practice loving kindness in these very ordinary, simple moments. 
And that's a little bit more what's actually sustainable. It's very hard, it's nearly impossible to sustain peak experiences. And if you pursue them, you can get really wrapped up in that. But just dialing it back a little bit, relaxing a little bit, and noticing this is a beautiful moment. I could be distracted, could be agitated, but this is a beautiful moment. Ah, let me relax into this. And then actually calm and collect and feel there's enough in this moment for me to be content. Not enough for me to define my whole, my whole egoic story, if that's where I'm trying to get secure, but this moment, relaxed, benign, with my senses open, is beautiful enough. And that, be, that actually expands into what uh, is samadhi, more than like a focusing thing, looking for a peak experience, and then being slightly disappointed, and always like turning the, the bolt a little too tight, trying to squeeze out a little more of what we think should be happening. Getting disappointed with that and then thinking about going home and then not quite wanting to go home. So then you sit down the moment you're in and then you say, well, I'll just keep saying these phrases. Obviously it doesn't work for me. I'm the broken one. But I'll just keep saying these phrases. And in that attitude, you might actually discover it's not all that great but it's not bad. In fact, it is kind of sweet, not in this very ambitious way that I was going to tell all my friends about or write a book about. Yeah, it's sweet. I'm like, ah, oh, look, a lizard. No, oh, look, my heart actually is humble and settled and open. And oh, it does feel good to breathe. This moment. And look, here's another one. Oh, these moments. It was such a turning point in my practice when I was a monk in Burma because I was trying to head towards those moments, but I was always over-efforting and then squeezing them very far in the future and then having to run after them even more, like having this carrot out in front of me. And the more I leaned towards it, the further the carrot would get away. And I get disappointed and I'd settle back and the carrot would come really close. And I'd like, oh, it's close, I'll grab it. And we'd get further away. And it's like, this is a torturing game. And it's like, I, I see you, Carrot. Oh, you're so close. You're so close. I can actually smell you. No, I can't chew on you. I can't own you. But you are actually much closer when I relax. And it's like, oh, wow, there's this actually content-making. And that was one of the five jhana factors that Sally Matt, uh, mentioned. It was really absent from my practice when I was pushing towards something and pursuing something. Is this growing sense of contentment with simple things. I really had to lower my egoic ambition. And I had to lower this hope that I would finally be a different person. I visited parts of me, grand version, grand temples. <laughs> like, how do I make this more permanent? But always kind of fell back into ordinary versions of me and didn't really find it... Uh, Secure. I felt humble, close to humiliated sometimes. And after leaving Burma, I didn't walk away grand, much more relaxed into this body as it is, this mind as it is, and found that my suffering came down tremendously by resting simply in the way things were, with less ambition, but just more sweet intention and not such a, a, a drive. 
And so this, it, this uh, Pali word, samadhi, intones these qualities of, it's easier to describe what is not samadhi, so being agitated, running 10 different things in your mind unproductively, but you can't drop any one of them because then it's one more thing that you feel overwhelmed because you're not attending this thing. So you're multitasking, stressed, throwing caffeine at the problem, and then getting tired, so you push harder, and then finally something shatters and you just lose it at the slightest thing because it's so stressful. It's like, well, let's take away the scatteredness. Let's come simply into, let's let the mind do one thing, not even two things, just one thing. Let's see if that can be content-making. Let's see if we can find that one thing interesting. And then can we intend and stay with that one thing, just a little support, like training wheels. We'd use vitaka vichara, aiming, sustaining. But there comes a point where your mind itself likes samadhi, and you can take away the efforting, and the mind itself says, ah, thank God there are these conditions where I can head towards this collectedness, this simplicity, this humility. I was so moved by the role that samadhi plays in our overall tradition. That It's one of the reasons that people who teach this retreat have really learned to appreciate it and really want to bring it into our inside tradition because it's so important uh, to learn these skills of collecting your attention, humbling, finding contentment in simple moments, having a simple practice, and then getting into it and then being afraid to go out into the ordinary world and find that it's just going to tear me apart. Um, but then finding I could actually do this when I was out in daily life. I just have to do one thing at a time well and draw contentment from one thing and it's the sugar high of doing several things that gets you into multitasking and then it fragments the mind and that multitasking is not that satisfying. And then once you drink salt water, you're thirstier and so you start multitasking more and you start fragmenting more. And the, the retreat can show you that by going the opposite direction, doing one thing at a time, it doesn't come with as many peaks, but it plays out a lot better over time. And it works better for our nervous systems to have a baseline, one thing at a time, and then doing several things at a time when necessary. And this went from where I was uh, driving a shift car when I was uh, growing up and learning to do that. I was trying to live at highway speeds, but being a monk in Burma and coming down, it's like a second and third year are beautiful. If you're in fifth gear, you're probably not actually seeing much of where you're going. You're focused on where you're going. You have to avoid people. You're going fast. Beautiful things are whipping by you, but you go on a country lane. You're going in second gear, 20 miles an hour. That's when you can actually stop and you're not throwing on the brakes. You can feel the turns of the road. Roads are allowed to turn at slower speeds. I think oh, there is a lot more contentment. It's just not got this sugar high to it. And those sugar highs can come and you can enjoy them, but they, they kind of rush by like they're supposed to because they're very fickle, these peak experiences. And then you're back to kind of country lane living. So <clears throat> one time, uh, so we have these five jhana factors that Sally mentioned. There's 
aiming your attention versus letting it just be adrift. And you can all do this. Like you can point your attention at the Prajnaparamita statue, and then you can point it at this light over here, and you could point it up. You're pointing your attention. You're not just letting it roll around. That's aiming your attention. And then you could aim it and then just sort of be like a monotasking but rapidly changing objects. Aiming, 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 aiming. It's like, oh, that's exhausting. Aim, ah, oh, sustain. That's sweet. Aim, ah, oh, sustain. That's sweet. Well, it's actually kind of soothing to try to aim and sustain. So these are two of these factors that cultivate samadhi, cultivate this unity. And then there's taking interest. And so you can take interest in very ordinary things like, you know, this pen or just picking up an object. If I aim and sustain, then I actually open up uh, an attention for what it is. I can see the lights playing off the the glossiness of the plastic. I can actually look at the the words on the side. I can feel its weight. I can actually open up a relationship to this pen by aiming and sustaining. But if I'm not aiming and sustaining, it's just a tool I use and drop, and it's plastic, and it gets thrown away. And we can do that. We can kind of burn through a lot of experiences with no underlying relationship to them. So we aim, sustain, we take interest, find contentment in simple things, this beautiful factor of sukha. And then uh, this fifth factor, ekagata, the one-pointedness, that really is supported by doing one thing at a time versus two things at a time. So to cultivate ekagata, you making a cup of tea, you're just making a cup of tea. You're not making a cup of tea and texting. You're uh, driving somewhere, you're not driving somewhere and texting. You could probably just like, if you're texting, stop, pull over and text. But if you're not, it's dangerous to do that. Anything you're doing, you could split your attention. And you know what it's like when someone's giving you their full attention or someone's giving you their full attention, but they keep glancing to the side or you can see their mind wander and they snap back actually give your full attention to the person you're talking to, the being in front of you, you give your full attention to the task at hand. You actually, it's quite a um, productive state. And the worry is that we're going to lose out in productivity. But because your whole heart is there, you actually can do beautiful things with the whole of your attention. So this one pointedness doesn't have to be a renunciation of joy to do this one solemn thing over and over and over. It actually opens up joy. If you really taste your food, you're not wandering with your attention. You aim, sustain, take interest, be content. And then with that one thing, one bite of food at a time is really uh, full of flavor. And how sweet to make metta the way that we're collecting our attention. So it could just be an activity of concentration but we're doing this, gathering our attention in kindness, gathering our attention in beautiful places that our heart already wants to be, but finds that uh, it's a little too scattered sometimes to have really sat with a friend, sat with a loved one, a little too scattered and unstable to deal with the challenges that are coming so we get thrown by difficult relationships and difficult beings. So it's an invitation to into... Uh, something quite health-making and 
good for our hearts and minds and our nervous systems. Let them relax, let them collect, and have that be a, a, the background hum. And then from there, you can go up into more stimulating environments. But it's good to then have recovery time. And that's one thing that we don't do out in daily life so much is give ourselves the amount of recovery time, like this whole re- retreat. In some ways, it's recovery time for the last decades of how we've been stimulating ourselves. But playing with these, uh, these five jhana factors is really fun. I was uh, dating someone once who um, was a prominent player in a wedding. And so I went to visit them, and they invited me to be there date on, in a wedding. And so I went, but I didn't know it was, there was a reception line. I thought, well, I'm, I don't know anybody here. I'm not going to be in the reception line. But they said, no, no, you be a part of the reception line. I was like, that's very generous. So I started shaking hands and shaking hands, and it's like, I'm not who they're here for, so I'm just going to let them go by me as quickly as possible. And I thought, what would, that, what would that feel like, that moment that you are going to the reception line? And there's this one odd guy who's just sort of like apologetic for being there and like barely touching your hand. And like, no, 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 this is a wedding. I'm going to step in. I don't know any of these people, but let's be a part of the, let's be a part of what's happened. And so I would aim and sustain, aim and sustain. I'd take a hand and I'd sustain in the shake. I'm like, okay, that's one level. I'm going to take interest in each person who comes, fresh interest. Oh, look, who are you? Holding your hand. Ah, I'm so happy you're here. And then that was a little hard to sustain, to like keep the interest up. So I just settled back a little bit more in contentment. It's like one person at a time, hold their hand, look in their eyes, glad you're here. Linger a bit, let them go. And then just do one thing at a time, one person at a time. When we'd go out walking for alms walk every morning, you would get donations from maybe 100 households. And it was interesting to see how each person would go to give uh, rice or some food to the monastics. And some people are very excited. Some people, there's a little bit of performance anxiety because they respect the monks so much. And you can tell there's a little tremble as they make that, uh, that offering. But there was one very beautiful old a Burmese woman, and we all had to slow down for her, and she was there every morning. And she would take the rice, and she'd look in your bowl. She'd put the rice in, and then she'd smooth out the little cone that was building and push the rice into the sides. And she did that for each monastic that walked by. And I thought about her throughout the rest of the day. Like, wow, she really had these beautiful jhana factors in the way that she offered uh, the, the rice, and it had an impact on me that someone slowed down, they aimed their attention, they sustained it, they took interest, they looked into each bowl freshly and smoothed out the, the rice. It gets too high, it gets outside the bowl, and then you get this rice paste in your robes, and it becomes like hardened glue, and it's very hard to actually clean it out, usually just end up spreading the paste so it takes a lot to get the rice out. And it's so nice that she would actually tend the little rice cone inside of our bowls. And then she, each person was like her grandchild walking by. And that could be accidental. You could be born with that type of attention and that personality. But it also can be cultivated. And it's what we're cultivating here is, can you 
very patiently in this moment, practice aiming your attention, sustaining your attention? Can you refresh your interest? Can you invite contentment in simple moments? And can you do it wholeheartedly? Is this moment worth your attention? And we learn over time, yeah, every moment is actually worth your attention. And that goes against the grain of our conventional minds that find many moments disposable. The more ordinary a moment, the more you don't have to pay attention there. You can be robotic in that moment. You can do it unconsciously. Then the mind draws itself up to problems and resources far away or in complex plans because it can do what it's doing habitually. And that's what a conventional mind does. And so, so much of what we're doing is cooling off and letting go of those habits, both with metta practice and with samadhi practice. And then you get the perfect peanut butter cup of bringing all that peanut butter and all that chocolate together in one beautiful little Justin's vegan uh, uh, organic uh, peanut butter cup. You want to bring that together. You want to bring together all the Brahma Viharas and it could seem complicated, but if you rest back, it's not complicated to play ukulele. It's a simple instrument, and often what comes through is a whole heart floods the room, not because it's complicated, but actually invites simplicity. And so we want to have a simple practice. We want to have a practice that's not so great to tell your teacher because it was flooded with lights, there was weightlessness, there was all this moving energy. It's like, oh, that's so interesting. Did you also care for yourself as you, before, during, and after? Did you get caught up in that? Is that validating to you? We need little validations along the way to help with our faith, but the payoff is not in these peak moments. It's actually in a heart and mind that says, I'm learning to love me in many more conditions. I'm learning to befriend myself in more and more conditions, especially the ones that didn't seem worth showing up for. And that really is the tone of a developing loving-kindness practice is, yeah, a lot more variety is happening on retreat, and yet I found this sort of steady putt-putt-putt loyalty to myself. And there are fewer and fewer conditions that would bring up suffering, would bring up my old habits of judging or pushing or struggling. So you, uh, looking at these five jhana factors, looking in, not at moment by moment, but just over the course of a day, are you practicing in a way that invites contentment? Or is the way you're approaching practice, is contentment nearly impossible because you're not getting what you want, or you are, but you have to grab onto it so hard? Can you be content with ordinary moments? You might say, yeah, I have a lot of contentment, it's like, is, do you find it interesting? And I think, nah, it's pretty repetitive. I'm just punching in. Something will happen someday, but it's not so interesting. If you would say that to one of the, the Burmese teachers, they would say, no, you, please re- reflect upon the preciousness. Please reflect in a way that you don't get into dull relationship to each moment, each metaphrase. And it does take some work to go against the grain of the ordinary mind. But there are crossover moments. I just taught a retreat in Bozeman, Montana, 
And if the rain can make it over the Cascades and then make it over the next uh, valleys and up the whole side of the Rockies, it can't quite make it up. It rolls back down the Pacific Ocean. But if it crosses over, then it's going to become the Mississippi River. And if you can kind of cross over into where you find it interesting, you're willing to show up for it, that starts leading forward into metta and samadhi combining. But we do have to cross over a certain uh, patterning in conventional living where we abandon ordinary moments because we don't have mature enough attention to show up for many ordinary moments of life. And that's why the practice is hard here because we're, we're confronting the habits of our heart and mind. So uh, the development of mindfulness is to see what's happening in the present while it's happening. So I'm angry, but I'm not mindful. And then maybe an hour later, I realize, wow, I was really angry. Mindfulness is actually seeing your angry while you're angry, seeing your mind is scattered while it's scattered, seeing your mind is dull while it's dull, seeing your mind is happy while it's happy. So that's just the factor of mindfulness. It just sees without judgment, oh, this is what's happening now. I'm hearing a bird call. I'm enjoying it. That's mindfulness. Mindfulness is not as fragile as samadhi is. Samadhi needs a lot more support for it to start to be a predominant factor where you can really taste the wholeness of your own heart, the contentedness of your own heart. It takes longer for you to feel that momentum, but as you do feel it, and as you're in it, uh, it becomes so supportive for being present and being mindful. So samadhi supports mindfulness, mindfulness supports samadhi, but samadhi needs a lot more care to do one thing at a time. And it's not our predilection to just do one thing at a time with the whole of our attention. And it's getting harder to do that in our more and more stimulating external culture. But the outcome of that is a crazy mind that is scattered, it, less and less enjoyment, and the enjoyment is like a, that horrible scrolling that you just can't stop scrolling. And no one thing you do is actually all that satisfying, or like eating potato chips. It's like no one potato chip. It just... You're just trying to avoid the aftertaste. And so you put another potato chip in and you're scrolling. It's like, oh my God, when am I going to stop? It's so unsatisfying. But it's so unsatisfying, I have to do more of it because it's so unsatisfying that it's only like one out of 10 flicks of my finger that's rewarding. So I got to do more of it. It's like, get out of this. Get out of this. It, it's, it's salt water. So... We come to a retreat like this, and we support wholeness of attention, simplicity, walking back and forth. And then we get a lot of agitation of old habits. And some of them are our own lifestyle habits. Some of them are what happen to human minds when they're not guarded or encouraged or supported to be whole. Some of it's by our choice. Some of it's... Uh, um, some of it's very very likely for a human mind that hasn't been encouraged to be whole and gets rewarded by being busy. And if, you're, if your community around you also is busy, then we raise kids in busyness. 
And then it's very hard to turn it around because you're chasing busyness. And how different it is when you come back and you start to taste, actually, there's a whole other kind of happiness in this simple presence. And that's where I actually taste the food I'm tasting. That's when I actually see the things I'm seeing. That's when I breathe and just a breath of fresh air is really satisfying. That's more available with this samadhi. Beautiful to invite that through these Brahma-viharas. And then samadhi practice begins to purify our habits of mind. So when you find uh, gold or silver nuggets out in, uh, by a stream bed, they still have impurities in them. So they're beautiful, they're shiny, they're soft, but you really can't work them in any fine detail because they have too, much, uh, other, too many other components inside them. And so the way that you purify gold or silver, one way is to heat it up because they're more dense materials. The, what's beautiful goes down into the heated crucible. What floats to the top is usually the things that are not gold or not silver. And you could say, wow, I heated up and it got dirtier. It's like, no, actually, the beautiful parts went deeper in. What wasn't what we want to keep float up to the top, and then you can kind of scoop off what's up top. And then there's much more pure gold or silver down deep. So sometimes these hindrances are just blocking us from our practice, but actually sitting and practicing and having impatience come or having a dull heart come. If you're doing this much practice, everything that happens turns out to be beneficial. And in hindsight, it gives faith to just keep doing the simple practice because if you're having challenging times, that's purification. It's not like, ah, when am I going to get back to good practice? This is ending. This is going to be very important practice to get the stuff up so you can actually remove it. You know, you know your heart is purified afterwards, but it takes some faith to build up that struggling to find self-love because things have not gone into very validating peak experiences, but being willing to love yourself anyhow is a tremendous turning of towards yourself, but you have to go through that disappointment and then not distract yourself there. And then that disappointment ends up being transitory, but what's actually left under is a strength, strengthened commitment to be with yourself even when you're restless, to be with yourself even when you're tired, to be with yourself when your practice feels so ordinary that it must be a statement about how little worth you have, that you could do this much practice and not get more out of it. But I showed up anyhow. And that showing up anyhow is incredibly powerful. And you'll probably feel the benefits of that, maybe not on the retreat. Maybe you feel it on the retreat, but you'll feel it when you leave the retreat that there are fewer conditions that you'll suffer in because you are befriending yourself and you have a commitment to befriend yourself. Like uh, suffering can be like a spark touches dry grass and it just takes off because the conditions are so right you add a little flame to dry grass and it takes off. Many of us are walking around with dry grass suffering. It doesn't take much to get our, our hearts in agitation. And then practicing both metta and the other Brahma Viharas and practicing samadhi, 
is like dampening that grass. So you can take a lot of sparks and a lot of heat, but it doesn't become a fire that you suffer in. It's just there's a lot of sparks, there's a lot of stimulation, there's a lot of negative experience, and yet I'm not burning up inside because of it. The Buddha described this in a few ways when he was talking about the development of samadhi. He compared it, uh, if you take a heavy stone ball and you throw it in a pile of wet clay, the ball goes deep into the wet clay. But if you take a ball of string and you throw it at a door made of hardwood, the string bounces off. And so if your heart is like wet, soggy clay, kind of I'm mixing my metaphors here because now wetness is a bad thing. <laughs> but under these conditions, you open the news or something happens or uh, something very difficult happens. And if your heart is not in its mode of samadhi, you'll be so hit by every moment of life in kind of an agitating way. And there's a way where you can fill yourself up and actually find, oh, I'm actually feeling some type of stability to my attention and my mind, my sense of myself, even though these experiences used to agitate me. This second analogy is more like the first I described where a dry timber catches light, uh, catches fire easily, and then wet timber won't catch a fire. Or I said, if you have a pot full of water, a pot full of metta and a pot full of samadhi, if you have a pot of water that's full, any water you add to the top rolls off. You can't go deep in. But if you have a hollow pot, you can pour it and get water inside. And so if you meet with angry people and you don't have your heart stabilized with samadhi and with metta, they'll get inside you and you'll share the anger. You'll be swept up. And so to actually feel this samadhi, feel this metta, it's a really good practice in and of itself. But it means that you're not as pushed around, as fragmented, as easily. And then you get to see that it wasn't so much the peak moment you could have on retreat. It was the steadiness of your commitment that you can take with you off the retreat into future days. If you're halfway through, some, so some of you are staying on for the next retreat, which is, means that you still have a whole beautiful expanse about uh, ahead of you. For some of you, we're getting closer to the end. And it doesn't matter. You just take this steady commitment. And you can even take a radical step and make a vow to yourself. Now that I see what it's like, I just take this simple vow that in every moment I will humbly point towards kindness and come what may outside of me, but inside I, I take this vow that kindness is a part of my understanding. Kindness is a part of my intention. When I was uh, traveling with some folks um, through India a few years ago, I went to the Burmese temple in Bodh Gaya and got to meet one of the old Burmese abbots there. And he very politely received us and made time for us. It was very generous. I mean, he was running this complicated uh, place where all these pilgrims are coming and going. Um, and I asked him, what's one thing that you teach, you find yourself saying most to people who are traveling through? What's one thing that you would say to these pilgrims traveling through? 
And he said, I, I try to sum up the Buddha's teachings as uh, the practice of ethical attunement, which we call sila, the development of samadhi, which is what we're talking about tonight, and the development of wise view, wise understanding. And he said this image of a really well-constructed ocean uh, boat uh, made of wood. Sila is like the strength of the wood. You want to find good timber to make the wood. Samadhi is how well that's crafted into the shape of the boat. So you can have really good wood, but if you're just tying it together with dental floss, it won't do anything. You can have really good ethical living, but it takes a wholeheartedness for the ethical living to actually uh, be connected with the beauty of your own heart. So it's just not being very rule-bound. So you shape this boat with sila and samadhi. And I said the wisdom factor is like having a rudder and a compass. You don't have a rudder and a compass, you can have a great boat, but it's still being pushed around by great forces. Do you have a direction you want to head? And with metta and appreciating samadhi, you can very steadily say, this is my vow, this is my intention. And now that I see what the mind is made of, and I see the promise of cultivating these beautiful states, and I see some of the peril of not cultivating it, or what it's like when I'm taken over by my own impatience, my own anger, and I lose perspective. Now that I know the difference, and maybe a third category is how many moments I just don't find that valuable. If I'm not careful, I suffer in that dullness. So being shown these possibilities, being seen, uh, seeing how difficult it is, but doable it is to train your heart and mind, you can take a vow and humbly live into that vow. I'll walk this path. I'll daily put in gentle, steady effort to my own ethical connection to the world around me. That's a value, come what may. And I'll allow my attention to be whole. Allow my attention to be warm, this heart, this present heart. I'll cultivate that. And I'll learn as I go, and I'll get more perspective about what living inside a human heart is like and how to cultivate it. And with that vow, may I cultivate samadhi, may I cultivate wholeness, may I do this practice, you can then steadily live into it, breath by breath, step by step. And that's how that vow is realized by freshly coming back and say, let me see if I can say these phrases sincerely. May I think of myself or another, wish myself friendly sentiments of safety or health or happiness. Compassion for when times are difficult versus frustration or anger. May I have compassion in hard times. May I have celebration in beautiful times. And may I be cultivating this balance that sees that there will be beautiful times and challenging times. That's all very natural. So taking these vows for practice and taking the time pressure off. It's so humble to say this may take some time and what a beautiful life to take steps in this direction. But it doesn't have to all manifest now. 
It turns out that that, act, that humility to do it step by step ends up being a more powerful practice than surging and getting frustrating, frustrated or pushing past who you are now to some perfectionist ideal, getting it, losing it. All that is agitating. But sitting simply, humbly, devotedly to simple practices in the simple present moment, turns out that that's quite expansive, that that does grow over time with your dedication. And you can practice this in your daily life. Not like we do on retreat, but more of your lifestyle can be sweet by giving whatever you're doing the wholeness of your attention. And then to watch out for the multitasking. You have to do it for work or an emergency or an actual time crunch. Maybe you have to do that. But then allow your heart and mind to settle back again, recollect, like shaking a jar of water, and just letting it rest some. Let the bubbles come out. Let it settle down again. So if you have to be at highway speeds, just do it as you need to. And then come back. And your heart shows you that's a much better uh, default setting to be whole, to be complete, to find satisfaction in simple moments. And then not to be building a huge egoic story about it, but finding the ego learns that it doesn't have to participate in every activity. And that a lot of moments are super sweet and the ego doesn't have to make it complicated. So let's uh, sit together for a little bit. Invite us to be uh, oriented towards simplicity, ease, and contentment in these circumstances not overriding what's happening. See if we can just settle back a little bit. Relax. Simply appreciate our breathing. And with patience, devotion, and humility, invite kindness. Don't demand it, but invite kindness. And how you're relating to your sense of yourself. To the easiest beings. inclusive of many beings we don't know. And even inclusive of the beings that are challenging. Just kindness.
I welcome all of us to keep practicing in this very simple, devoted way, taking it moment by moment, being patient, and enjoy that practice. And be kind to yourself if you're purifying. If you're having a difficulty happen, put your hand on your own heart and be kind to yourself when the practice is challenging. It's still working. So don't add suffering to the challenge. Be kind to yourself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.